You're working on a project with your team and trying to do everything through email. Things started okay initially, but as soon as you add more than a few people or share more than a few files, the whole thing falls apart and becomes a mess. Someone gets omitted from CC and misses an important update, and there's that other person who adds a lot of people to the thread, even though most of them don't belong there. Not forgetting the coworker who starts a whole new thread and a new discussion about the same thing. Email is great for talking to one person, but terrible for talking to a group for project management. Basecamp comes into play here. Basecamp is made to make it easier to manage projects that everyone can do. You start a project in Basecamp, post a description on the message board, and let everyone else catch up on their own time. When someone has something to say, they write it on the message board. If someone has a quick question, they post it in the chat. When someone needs to share a file, you put it in Basecamp, and everyone can see the recent version. Communications run the way that it should. Basecamp makes it easy to work together on projects without wasting time. Teams that use Basecamp send less email and have fewer meetings. Go to basecamp.com slash today and sign up to start a free 30-day trial. No credit card is required and you can cancel online anytime. If you want to know if Basecamp is right for your team, signing up for a trial is the best way. Remember to go to basecamp.com slash to get your free trial. Thank you, Basecamp, for sponsoring this episode. One good thing that happened to me during the pandemic was to consider restarting my podcast, which I stopped after five episodes in 2016. Stuck at home with time on my hand, I wanted to put the microphone I bought for a better Zoom meeting experience to more use. I tried recording the podcast via Zoom, but it wasn't good. The sound quality was less than ideal, and any intermittent connection issues made it worse. Fortunately, I found Zencaster a dedicated platform for virtual audio and video podcast recording. It provides crystal clear sounds which is recorded locally before being pushed to the cloud. This way, you don't have to worry about any inherent connection issues that may disrupt your audio quality. And if you wish to do video, it allows you to record in gorgeous 1080p HD. The best tool is useless if it is too complicated. Zencaster resides on the web and there is nothing to download. If you know how to use the browser, you would know how to use Zencaster. I want you to have the same easy experiences I do for all my podcasting and content needs. If you go to zen.ai slash agentan and enter the promo code agentan, you'll get 30% off your first three months. That's zen.ai slash agentan. It's time to share your story. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of the agentan show. You probably have heard of people doing serious career pivot. From former bankers to farmers, from former airline crews to bakery, you probably have seen a lot of it. But have you heard of someone who came from the professional dancing scene and went into FX trading? And that's the backstory of my guest today, Mr. Raphael Ng. Born to professional dancers, he started taking ballet lessons at a young age of four and eventually extended to various forms of dancing like Chinese dance and contemporary dance till he was 27. He then went on to achieve distinction in his Royal Academy of Dance Ballet examinations and even clinched top places in world competitions like the International Dance Competition in Bozzolo, Italy and the Barcelona Dance Grand Prix during his time in a contemporary dance group back in university. Along the way, he grew curious in FX investing using some of the money from his scholarship funds. By applying the same discipline he had towards dancing, he discovered that it was actually possible to achieve an above industry average return. The discovery had not only helped his family and friends to outperform most of their other investment during periods of market turmoil, but also spurred him to dig deeper into the field. 
And with that, Raphael eventually decided to hang up his leotards for a career in fund management. Believing that investors should be made aware of how FX can serve as a consistent and reliable source of returns, he eventually joined Salesworth, a registered fund management company regulated by the MAS, specializing in alternative asset classes, and co-founded the Global Currency Fund with like-minded individuals like Ashi Ko and Yap Tzu Singh in 2019. Raphael's passion for dance still eventually led him to found Supertone, a company that offers chic and comfortable dancewear along with Jete Studios, a ballet school for children as a way to nurture the next generation of ballet dancers. Raphael, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me, Adrian. Your background was never in the finance space. What were you doing prior to it? Actually, I was dancing for a couple of decades prior to that. <laughs> then subsequently, I entered the financial industry, actually started off in the more technology space and then slowly moving on to now doing fund management. That's a very interesting pivot because normally I hear people going in the other direction, maybe sick of banking, go become a farmer, la, go and go some third world country. La. But in your case, it's a bit different. So very happy, interested to learn more about uh, your backstory here. What's the key motivation for you to transit from dancing to becoming a fund manager? I wouldn't say I deliberately planned for it. I would say that it, it kind of just happened. Of course, a transition was more, you can say, subtle and not deliberately planned. So what happened was, uh, uh, initially I was dancing in uh, actually quite a bit in school, representing a school for like uh, competition, when I say school at university. So uh, back then we were all training like uh, three, four times a week uh, as a team. So we went uh, overseas for competitions and all that. And I had a good time. So some of my friends also joined like actually uh, some dance companies as well subsequently. So they all pursued more, I suppose you can say more full-time uh, in dance. Uh, for myself, I guess it's a bit more practical uh, in, in that respect. So uh, I, I'm the only child, so I can also consider, for example. So it's so some dancers eventually can make a good living out of it. Yes, but I would say that the probability is a bit like smaller than let's say someone going to the financial industry. So the probability of you like making a good living out of it, it will be like high. So I'm thinking more from that a bit more practical angle from their from their regard, which is why eventually I went into more the financial industry and and subsequently after some time and then into fund management. So it wasn't directly dancing straight out of uni into fund manager. There was like. Uh, some, some things I did along the way that slowly transitioned to that. Can you help us to understand the kind of dancing level that you're at versus the kind of people like myself who last time in the younger days go Europa and dance? It's very different. Uh? Oh, I would say there would maybe the small difference would be more like training maybe four or five times, sometimes maybe even up to six times a week when the competition day nears and uh, competing and yeah, just representing your school or representing like group to compete overseas and yeah, and uh, try to win something. Uh, we were lucky. I think sometimes there's really an element of luck as well, whether or not the judges are like you. Art is very subjective. Performance is very subjective. It's not running where if you are slower by, let's say, uh, two seconds or whatnot, I mean, it's clearly you are the second, right? You're not the first. But dance is, oh, how do you, it, it's very subjective. So I will say there's definitely an element of luck there as well. And are yeah. there any specific dances that you are more focused on? There would be more towards contemporary dance where I joined SMU. Singapore Management University. They had a contemporary dance group. I joined that and together with my team there, we competed quite uh, extensively, performed, uh, competed and, and, and all that quite, quite, quite a bit. Yeah, every year there would be quite a number of performances and then some competitions as well. Yeah. Given the 10,000 hours you probably have applied onto dancing, perhaps <laughs> even more, do you still dance recreationally? 
Uh, unfortunately, no, I don't. So I would like to think of it that I'm still in the dance scene by by running my uh, dance school. So I have a ballet school for children, as well as also this dance wear kind of like a, a apparel, I guess you can say like a side business as well, together with some friends. Yeah. So that's like how I'm still involved in a dance. I like to think of it that way. <laughs> this is coming from me as a parent, because I think for parents, we always want to groom our kids to go in a certain direction based on the talent that they have, based on what they are presenting to us. In your case, was there a specific trigger point to your memory? And how was the crucial support from your parents helpful in your journey towards dancing? I need to preface it a little bit by saying that both my parents are dancers. So they are okay and they like me actually picking up this uh, hobby, I would say. So is it in the DNA in your case? I would say, okay, I can't can't prove it. You might be right, (laughs) but I can't prove it. Yep. But they didn't get me to just learn dance, so to speak. So they got me to learn uh, a lot of other things as well. I think a lot of Singaporean kids probably learn more than one one activity, right? So probably like arts and craft, maybe martial arts, piano, violin, you know, the whole works. Uh, so, So likewise as well. So I got to learn a lot of different things. It's just that for uh, dance, somehow uh, it just I, I just carried on, but the, the rest I just decided that it wasn't for me. I told my parents that I don't really like that. Uh, I, I don't really like uh, uh, the the other like uh, activities, but for dance, I'm like okay, uh, I like it. It's enjoyable. I like to move around, interact with, with the other friends I have uh, in the dance class. Uh, yeah, yeah, it just stick yeah with me throughout. And my parents are of course supportive, but I would say it's not so much as supportive of dance itself. They are just supportive in general. Yeah, of course, if it's dance, then they will be of course more happier. We'll be right back after this message from our sponsor. Special thanks to Zencaster for sponsoring today's episode. Podcasting remotely can be challenging, but it doesn't have to be. Zencaster's all-in-one web-based solution makes the process quick and painless, the way it should be. I'm obsessed with quality and Zencaster delivers crystal clear audio and stunning HD video. Not to mention that it's easy to use even for my less tech-savvy guest. There's nothing to download. They simply click on the link and begin recording. Zencaster is all about making your podcasting experience as simple as possible. You don't have to leave your browser to finish the episode because the tool includes everything from local recording to automatic post-production. Take the next step in your podcasting journey. Go to zen.ai slash adriantan and enter the promo code adriantan and you'll get 30% off your first three months. That's zen.ai slash adriantan and remember to enter in the promo code adriantan at checkout. It's time to share your story. Fast forwarding to what you're doing right now as a fund manager and given your unique background from the dancing scene to doing fund management, do you see any aspect of dancing experience that actually contributed to you being a better or say a more unique fund manager? I would say a few things there. One is of course, I know this is a very obvious parallel in terms of uh, being different uh, or rather being unique. So for example, being a male ballet dancer is something quite uncommon. In that regard, uh, I am used to being like different. I, when my friends ask, what are your hobbies? And of course, usually as, as, as guys, you would expect something more sports related, uh, even like a music related. That's, uh, that's something that people, but if you say like, you're, uh, I, I dance ballet, that would be something quite unexpected, a bit niche. And then I would say that in this regard, in terms of niche, that would be really what we are doing in terms of uh, our fund which is really in uh, currency trading using algorithms. That is really niche. You've heard of probably a lot of, let's say, equity funds. You've probably heard a lot of bond funds and so on. But currency trading fund would be something really niche. In fact, 
we might be the only one doing like what we do in Singapore. So that's how, how niche it is. So I guess that is one part of it. Okay, that we are like being niche. And of course, comes with the pros and cons as well. So I like to joke with my like friends that uh, the good thing is that we are niche and also that's the, so the con, which is we are niche because a good thing we are niche is that if you're looking exactly for that, we are like uh, the only. The good thing is that if someone's looking for a currency fund, for example, then uh, we are one of the only, if not the only players in the market. And so that, that's a good thing. So they'll just come to us. And of course, uh, the better thing is that it's not every day that someone wakes up one fine morning and say, I need some currency fund uh, in my portfolio. I don't think anyone really wakes up one fine morning and say that. So that's not something that you will uh, get organically. There's a lot of education explaining about what we do. A lot of people think that we are super high risk because they think of like currency with like super high leverage. Maybe one is to 100, one is to 500 leverage that you see with retail brokerages, but we don't use that, for example. For financial noob like myself, could you give an example of a currency trade? How does that work and how does it help your customer and yourself to make money? And the second part to that question is, how does using algorithm differs to how traditional currency fund manager function? I give an example. Let's say you hold 100 Singapore dollars and you go to a money changer. Let's say you go to Arcade to change money to a Malaysian ringgit because you want to go to Malaysia. Then you find two money changers. One of them giving maybe a rate of a 3.2 and the other one giving a rate of 3.3. So then you will change your $100, obviously, with the one that gives you more ringgit, which is the 3.3. So then, okay, you do that. So now you have 330 ringgit. So in theory, you go to the other money changer that you didn't go to and change 320 ringgit back to 100 Singapore dollars. Now, if you were to do that, and assuming that there isn't any, of course, additional fees, we're talking about purely the theoretical now. So then you will get 10 ringgit and also 100 Singapore dollars. So that is a, an example of that. So that's one way that we, we can do a trading. The other way that we do trading would be we buy and hold 320, uh, 330 ringgit, for example. Then however, let's say price move in the next instance, then we can change it back to Singapore dollars and then we will earn that. So the, there's these two ways, broadly speaking, there's also obviously other ways, but I would say that the second way would be more of what we do more often, which is really trading on the, but in this case, of course, when we trade, uh, we trade based on the uh, pairs. So let's say if there's a, okay, maybe I use a more real example. <laughs> Actually, we trade more on pairs like uh, dollar yen, for example. So uh, we are looking at the kind of uh, difference in terms of the movement, in terms of the dollar yen price. And then uh, we will, let's say, we expect the dollar yen to move upwards. So the price will move upwards and then we will buy the dollar yen pair, for example, at a certain price, and then we will close it when it goes up and vice versa. And because we can do it both ways, so like we can uh, buy and expect to go up and we can also short. So that's also uh, for that. So then we can uh, profit uh, both ways and we trade really based on the movements in prices. So you can say that we are more relying on, let's say we call it price action. So like movements in prices and we trade on that because we are more technical traders to the point on how do we use uh, algorithms for that? Yep, you can definitely do it manually. That's also okay. However, for us, we, there's only pairs that we can see because let's say we trade on, let's say G7 currency pairs. When I say G7 currency pairs, the more, the more common, most liquid pairs in the world. So for example, the Australian dollar, the Canadian dollar, the US dollar, a Japanese yen, and so on and so forth. So, and then across all these pairs, there's around 20 pairs when you cross them over. Uh, Aussie yen, uh, Kiwi yen, and so on. So there's different pairs that can cross them over. So that's around 20. As a, yeah, so you can't look at, well, 20 charts at the same time. So this is where you need to rely on 
the algorithms to detect, okay, this few pairs match the kind of strategy that we are looking for. So there are potential beneficial opportunities to play some trades in. So then there will be like signals that they send to you. So this is where the algorithm come in. They might even execute it automatically dependent on that. Then, and of course, this is important also because what happens behind the scene is all this is really based on. So speed in terms of when you, for example, let's say maybe a uh, layman example is when you want to buy a stock, when you buy an uh, Apple share, so you want to get it at a particular price. Let's just say that it's $100. When you actually buy it, then, oh, now it moved to $101. So you probably miss it. So that's what we mean by our slippage. So we don't want to have that kind of a price difference when you were to place the order. So that's why we need to make sure that it's fast. And to make it fast, we need to have algorithms because it's faster than you pushing buttons from that regard manually. So that's how I will explain it. When I worked in a brokerage firm, I only was there for a few months and exactly oh. I placed an order late for a client because the online system was down. And because of that, Miss Profit wrote in a letter, complained, and I got a warning letter and I realized, well, I think finance industry is too overwhelming for me. And even <laughs> the things that you mentioned, I think perhaps because I'm not financially trained, it seems quite heavy. Is it something that you went through as well during the early earlier pivot into this period in, into fund management? Or could you just describe to us what's the learning curve like for you during the beginning? When I was in university, so uh, I was uh, quite lucky. I got some uh, scholarship money and part of it uh, was, in, was in cash. So I wanted to, like I say, uh, make your money grow for you. So I, I wanted to learn how to uh, invest my monies. I reached out to some of my very smart peers, very smart seniors, and uh, they recommended me to try out uh, currency trading using algorithms. I know it's like going from zero to hundred all the way, but to me, I was like, okay, I can accept the idea of automating trades because I studied information systems management in university. Automating manual processes is something that I can easily uh, accept. So when they said, it's just like a manual trader trading, but instead you automate these ideas. Okay. To me, I was quite ready to accept that. I actually started as just putting some money in to give it a try first. And then subsequently finding out more about, okay, how exactly is it done? What's really, what's it like behind the scenes? And just, you can quite learning on the job or as a side hobby and really finding out more about that. And eventually that's, the, the interest starts to accumulate with that. And yeah, yeah, eventually I had the opportunity. So some of my friends uh, wrote me in and they said, okay, I, I knew them since uh, uh, quite early on, even in university days. And they said that, oh, you know what? Now we are going to start this uh, fund. Uh, would you like to join us? So that's how I got to uh, start this uh, fund. So I wouldn't say it's something I planned. It was definitely not planned. It was, it was uh, just very, I would say, uh, fortuitous that I had this opportunity. And what's your day-to-day -day like right now as a fund manager? The day-to-day -day like actually would be a lot of thinking of ways to grow the fund. At the end of the day, for a fund, really, the, the fund lives and dies by the assets under management. So how much assets you're managing. Myself, most of my work revolves around really business development, partnerships. I have to speak with a lot of potential investors. That So for us, we can only reach out to accredited investors. So that's, uh, that's according to the rules, the regulations. So we can have to reach out to, let's say, uh, potential investors, for example, let's say family offices that might be looking for such an absolute return fund, so to speak. And of course, we reach out to them, explain to them what we do. That's quite a big part of my work. Of course, along the way, there are other parts of it as well, a bit more so-called admin part of the work. There would be more reporting. There would be a bit more, let's say, compliance, sometimes even onboarding, a bit more regulatory work there. There will be maybe a bit more 20, 30%. And the, and the main bulk of it is really more thinking of ways to grow the fund in different ways. And for people who may be interested in getting into this industry, knowing what you know right now, would you have any advice for them? 
So for an FX fund, it's very different from, let's say, if you were to trade FX and currencies yourself. It's, it's, it's a whole different uh, ballgame altogether. Reason being, now the scale is different. The size is different. So you need to consider also how efficient your code is when you are doing that. So that is one part of it. How you can optimize the code base when you uh, code out the algorithm. The second part is uh, in terms of the latency. So when I say latency, it's about you need to consider where do you place your servers. Now, this is a bit more tacky uh, if it gets down to that. So the reason why that's the case is a lot of people think that, oh, you know what? I can just do it with uh, any brokerage that I've anyway been using. In general, if the size is a bit small, that's okay. But when you want to do certain strategies, certain trades, you really got to have that faster speeds, which we call it lower latency. And sometimes you're going to consider where do you place your servers? So that will be more, where do you look? Where do you place your code base? Where do you place your servers? And of course, the ideal case would be next to the counterparty, i.e. next to where the, the data provider is, if you can put it that way. So then in this case, most of the FX trades will be in London, in a particular data center. Then we would want to also get the same space. But here's the thing. Um, everyone knows that in, in this field. So everyone will be fighting for that space as well. So then it'll be very pricey. So you're still going to consider, which is why it's not economical if it's not big enough. So size matters uh, in this case. So yeah, you need to consider that. So that's the business element to it on top of the tech element as well. And then of course, finally, it would be the kind of pricing feed that you're getting because, well, you've worked in a brokerage before and there's different books. So there's the VIP customer getting the better book and there's the, I'm sorry, if you're not a VIP customer, you have a different book. So then there's the, where the relationship comes in. So there's also the business aspect of it as well, where very different from if you were to just do it with your own money. Where do you personally see the future of FX currency fund management? I would see it as getting more towards algorithm focused. They are increasing. So versus, let's say, many years back where there's not so much technology advancement. Nowadays, a lot of trading is really done by algorithms, automated execution and whatnot. So I see the movement towards that. Of course, there's still profits to be made by very good manual traders and using certain types of strategies, there's still profits to be made. But I would say that is a lot lesser than previously. Yeah. So I would say that the trend will be more towards uh, uh, automated. You mentioned earlier on also that you are only looking at accredited investor. Do you foresee that this might be open up to normal retail investor like myself? I would say it is unlikely. So reason being, at least in Singapore, we've got to definitely follow the regulations and on that. And the regulations uh, would say that something like, let's say, a currency trading fund would be more considered a more uh, leveraged. Uh, like leverage product. So it's definitely towards the more of a higher risk uh, set of investments. So because of that, that's why uh, we can only offer it to accredited uh, investors in that regard. Of course, retail investors, some retail investors may already be trading currencies themselves, but that would be reduced leverage in, with some of the local brokerages. So yes, it's not like FX trading is only for, let's say, accredited investors. You can do it too. It's just that if you were to use a Singapore regulated uh, brokerage, then the leverage you get to use is a lot smaller. It tends to impact the trades that you yeah, are doing and the kind of strategies that you can do. Of course, this is uh, a, a huge caveat there. Some retail investors then may choose to open, let's say, uh, non-Singapore based like uh, brokerages uh, to get the kind of like uh, leverage that they need uh, for their trades. And but again, this is not a recommendation or anything like that. <laughs> not yeah. investment advice. Not investment advice. Not, but some people do that as well. So then uh, this is how retail investors may get started. But if re any retail investors listening to this wanting to get started in uh, currency trading, please uh, try with a demo account. Don't lose your money until you are really uh, confident about it. Then yeah, then try out with very little money. Make 
expect that you're going to lose everything. You're going to blow up your account. Yeah. You tend to blow up your account many times before you even be, uh, uh, make some good decent profits. But just, yeah, it is going to be risky if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. If you find that too tough, I can always, well, find us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love the disclaimer. Plan for the best, but prepare for the worst as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, expect that most investments may, yeah. Uh, just go to zero. Just expect that. And uh, I would think that's really how you view a lot of this. Thank you so much. And before I let you go, where can people find more about you online as well as your fund that you're managing? Okay. So uh, you can uh, find us at www.southsworth.com. So that's S-A-L-Z-W-O-R-T-H. The way you can think about it is uh, Salzburg, which is Austria. In Austria, there's this, uh, there's this place called Salzburg. And also in Pinac, there's this place called Butterworth. Why? Because this is the place where our two co-founders grew up in. Butterworth and Salzburg. So they put the two places together, become a Salzburg. And what's interesting about that also is that our actually tagline is bringing you investments worth their salt. And that's because uh, in ancient times, the soldiers were paid with salt, not gold, because salt was worth more than gold. In fact, that's, that's where they say that the word salary comes from. Ah, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, so that, that's a nice brand story. <laughs> yeah. All right, cool. All this will be in the show notes for people who are keen to learn more about Salesworth. And Rafael, thank you so much for coming onto the show to share with us more about your backstory, how you got into fund management and all the financial lessons that I've actually learned today. Thank you so much. Uh -huh. Okay, all right. Thank you. Thank you, Adrian. Thanks for having me. Special shout out to today's sponsor, Zencaster. It may not be obvious, but every podcast episode usually comes with post-production. The ding, swoosh, fit in and outs are usually painstakingly added in by a professional sound engineer. The sound also requires normalization and noise reduction to provide listeners with the best listening experience. Before you grunt at spending money on sound engineering, you'll be pleased to know that all this can easily and quickly be done on Zencaster. It comes with a soundboard for live editing, so you can insert any audio clips live as you record. You can also add intro, add and other audio on the fly. And with its automatic post-production feature, you can be assured of studio-quality sound with loudness normalization, noise and hum reduction that makes your podcast sound like it was recorded in a studio. One transcript for your listeners? Zencaster's transcriptions are produced by their language modeling AI and proprietary machine learning tools that are on par with leaders such as Google Descript and Author.ai. To enjoy all this, simply sign up for Zencaster by going to zen.ai slash adrian and enter the promo code Adrian Tan and you'll get 30% off your first three months. That's zen.ai slash Adrian Tan and remember to enter in the promo code Adrian Tan. It's time to share your story. Thank you for listening to the podcast. You can refer to the show notes for links to more information about our guests and their businesses. If you enjoyed this podcast, it'll be helpful to give a review on iTunes or follow me on Spotify. If you're using Overcast, please hit the star button under the episode. That will help get this episode and podcast out to more people who may find it useful. I'll see you in the next episode of The Agent Han Show.